igniting original concepts. You felt like you were really making a difference for them. Why wouldn't you do that? The biggest challenge that you have is not to... You're going to have disruptions all the time. If you want something different, you have to be willing to do something different. You're listening to Forest FM, the salon business show with your host, Zoe Galilla Springer. For your industry, by your industry. Hey everyone, this is part two of a brilliant conversation with Pepper Pastor, a dynamic professional with 20 plus years of experience within the hair and beauty industry, but also very passionate about collaborating with entrepreneurs, creatives, and tech startups. With a solid foundation in neuroscience, Pepper brings a unique perspective to the realm of work behavior, utilizing neuroscience principles to shape the development of executive functioning. Specializing in fine, thin hair resulting from aging, hormones, and environmental factors, Pepper's still accepting new clients in Austin, Texas, but has also invested a significant amount of time in offering consulting services to salon owners and professionals, providing resources to create improvements towards sustainable careers. In that realm, she works with individuals and owners to understand their employee life cycle, build a high-trust culture within the salon, um, offers emotional intelligence training, and one-on-one coaching. But she's also the founder of Purpose and Policy, a team of leadership and organizational development experts offering group and individual coaching, custom assessments, and sustainable strategies backed by neuroscience. If you've come to this episode straight from the last one, episode 275, amazing. Stick around as I briefly overview what this episode will be about. Now, a little disclaimer for anyone who is just tuning in without prior knowledge of the episode on employee life cycles that was aired just before this one. You can absolutely listen to this episode before episode 275. However, I would still very much recommend listening to both episodes in order because you might miss out on a few references to the previous episode in this one as we uh, you know, pick up right where we left off in 275. In the next 45 to 50 minutes or so, we'll be talking about assessments and tracking the results from any change you implement in your business. We'll be talking about dysfunction in salons, so identifying and addressing it to foster trust, engage in constructive debate, achieve clarity and commitment, hold each other accountable, and prioritize team results over individual ambition. And of course, this will lead us straight into organizational culture, the fabric of your company and people. So Pepper, thank you so much for joining me. And, you know, I was thinking about maybe we could get started with a question that blends a bit of both episodes topics. So with that in mind, what can we say about the employee's life cycle's impact on an organization's culture? Yeah, when I when I think about that and think about how how, how does something that has all these steps impact something that we cannot see, that we, we, we is not tangible, right? That's one of the hardest things when we talk about organizational culture, because mm-hmm. it's not something that we can see or touch. It's, it's something that we experience, and it's something that looks very, very different for everyone. Um, so th- this is part of a struggle with when companies want to work with me or how I... Um, you know, put information out there is I cannot do a step one, two, three, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> your organization and what your vision is, what your demographic, all of these components to any business is going to look very different, right? So it's not a one size fits all. However, 
I can tell you, you know, in terms of answering this question is, is, is how an employee life cycle, right? How all of those elements fit together in and they, the way that they impact an organizational cu- culture is knowledge and certainty. There is something in our human behavior that we are constantly seeking. The more knowledge we have, the more that we know about what's happening around us, the more we can lower our level of uncertainty. So what do I mean by that? If we if we don't know what's going on, <laughs> it makes us feel anxious. Yeah. And we feel unclear and we don't we don't know what to do with that. So, that being said, if in an if an organization can set expectations and have clarity around those expectations, that becomes knowledge for everyone that works there. And in that knowledge, we are able to have certainty. And how the human brain works is our brain is at its least productive state in terms of task orientation when we are experiencing uncertainty. Why? Because our brain is constantly looking for patterns and and sense making, and it is extremely lazy. People don't realize that about the human brain. It is very lazy (laughs) and it always wants to go to default settings. Right. So if you put that uncertainty in there, I don't know what's clear. I don't know what's my next step. How do I, you know, okay, I just I didn't get onboarded. So, you know, where do where are the paper towels in the salon? This client needs the little things for their glasses when I'm putting on the the color, but nobody showed me where that was. Yeah. You know, these things that they don't feel good in the moment, right? So those are things that we can do is setting clarity and expectations will will enhance your organizational culture because you're gonna lower anxiety. Interesting. I and, and without getting too deep into that topic because because it could be like a an entire podcast episode on its own, but Do you think, because we were talking off air about this, if we're talking about uncertainty, I feel like, well, for instance, for me with um, like navigating OCD, Mm -hmm. that I I know that I feel very, very uncomfortable with uncertainty. Do you think that like in an organization where you have a lot of neurodiverse folks, Mm -hmm. the, there's like an heightened need to lay out those expectations to like relieve the discomfort that your staff could have? A hundred percent. And it, it, it goes on a range, right? It's on a, it's on a continuum and it's on a continuum because generally in research, this is what's shown up in the research. The newer someone is to something. So if I start a new job, if I am brand new to the beauty industry, the newer I am, the more support I need and the less I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Right. Right. So I want less feedback. I want more guidance when I'm green. Okay. When I am very advanced and I am highly skilled, I'm now the director of the salon. You know, maybe I, I've cultivated some of the processes for people. I want feedback. Mm. Now I want you to tell me what can I do better? Right. Because I have the confidence. It's about confidence. So to that point in in this spectrum of things, culture looks like that within that. And an organization as its own entity kind of follows suit with that of where do I live on this spectrum? 
as a company. Now, there are certain businesses that th this is really actually fascinating. Um, there are certain businesses that you, we all kind of know this, but there's something called structural dynamics. And these are these unconscious team dynamics. And I know just off the top of my head of a salon that the culture of the salon is very implemented. This is a salon that's been around for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Every step of the employee life cycle is set up. When the when there's an onboarding process, you get a partner. They regularly check engagement. Um, they, they do do when you leave. They want to know why. They do a questionnaire about it. So this is someone that does this. Now, the underlying unconscious behavior of the organization is they bring in people that connect because they've all experienced significant trauma. So on one level, they all their policies and procedures are on point. But on the other level, they all suffer from very high dysfunction behaviorally. Mm. And that's where things need to meet. Now, on the other hand, when I sold, sold my salon, I went to work for Laurent D. <laughs> and he's a fabulous creature. And again, you talk about leadership in the last episode of people that just want the top, the top people. There was Johnny Ramirez, myself, um, uh, Aaron, and Chase, who now own IGK Hair. We all came out of, of Laurent's salon, mm -hmm. right? And Laurent had no structure whatsoever because a lot of this behavior, this unconscious behavior comes from our origin family and what um, what parenting might have looked like. Yeah. Right. So this structured salon that I speak of felt very comfortable for people that needed to have structure and existed within dysfunction. Right. Mm. In in Laurent salon. We don't have time. We're high performers. We don't have time for dysfunction. And I don't have time for your processes and policies because I'm I'm here because I'm a high performer and I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want you, you know, parent to tell me when my curfew is. Right. Yeah. And then then you see which it's in, it embodies where stars are made. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, it looks very differently. And I know that's not a like a nicely packaged answer for you. But the, that shows the range of how how important it is in in your process of a business is what do you value? What do you want that to look like? Yeah. And then starting to fill in the gap and shape that from there because you have the, the conscious level and the tasks and the policies and procedures. And then you have the unconscious, which is the dynamics and, and how people feel. And that's the name of my company. So that my consulting company is called Purpose and Policy because that, that is the stem for everything, truly. And I love that it's also your name's initials, P&P. <laughs> I like that you thought that pattern seeking. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah, to to bring it back to you know, um, let's say you're listening to this and you're like, okay, I maybe don't have the best you know policies and structures and systems, and you're like, oh, also maybe culturally wise, it's not ideal either. Considering the amount of things that both involve in terms of like making things better, which problem should you tackle first? Like which will have a bigger impact on one versus the other? 
I don't want to say that I'm going to answer this similar to the last question in terms of this, this kind of spectrum, mm. but the, the real answer here is simultaneously. And I say that because making cultural changes are extremely difficult. They're yeah. not going to happen in a day. They might not even happen in two years, right? They're very, very difficult to make cultural changes because when we're talking about cultural Again, in the last episode, I talked about kind of artifacts, like co- components of culture are these artifacts of like how we dress and um, how, what you know, the way in which that maybe we give tea to clients. Um, these are uh, these are all little components of the decor, right? Like the, yeah. the vibe, right? Those are artifacts. Um, those we can shift around, right? And we know that in, in behavior, when we shift one thing, we create new new growth and new learning experiences. So then we may alter through other things by shifting something small. Now that can begin while simultaneously changing your policies and your systems. Mm-hmm. But we know lots of research case studies. If you implement new policies and you shift these when the culture can't support them, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Right. So they, it kind of really needs to be quite married together and, and functioning together. And, you know, if you were to ask me, how do you do that? It is, it's a process and, and it, it requires somebody coming in. Right? It's not, that is not something that I would say a salon owner can do on their own without support. And that could be that they listen to a lot of podcasts, that they read some books on business modeling, leadership tactics, that sort of thing. Um, But it's definitely something that you're going to want some outside resources on how to, how to do because they need to, they need to come in together. And it's essentially change management is what you're looking at. And it probably helps also to have that like outside perspective. Like otherwise, like if you're right in it, like you're biased anyways, (laughs) it's like going to be hard to like create that detachment to, to be able to make those big changes. You can't see it. And I'll tell you in, in interim, you know, the past five, six years of, of my, my academic career, um, you know, at the doctoral level, when you're doing an internship, you're a consultant, right? You're, you're kind of coming in and, and you're doing research and you're kind of running analysis on, on who approves you to do this. And in this process, I can tell you every single time when I was looking at how to shift a culture, how to implement new um, policies, how to run analyses on critical thinking behaviors that needed to change within a leadership structure, every single time the person who was the boss, right? The one with the highest authority Mm -hmm. was the one that needed to change the most. Wow. Right. So you need an outside party to support what what that looks like yeah is not easy <laughs> and tell you the hard things i'm assuming too <laughs> yes yes yeah um okay yeah. so so what are maybe um some early signs or symptoms of you know poor employee engagement systems or like a poor culture and how can you like maybe spot those so signs now one thing I, I I was I did not do in our last um, in our last episode to, to, together was to bring it. So we're talking about 
employee life cycle. Now, employee life cycle runs parallel to client life cycle. It also runs parallel to organizational life cycle. Yeah. Right. So anything that I'm saying in this, you can take away. Like if you're listening to this and you, you know, have a salon suite, you can take this knowledge and transfer it on how you work with your clients, right? Like if you have low retention on your clients, you can, the attraction, like all these things fit into place. And what does it look like when a client leaves? Like, you know, do you try to learn from that experience, right? So when you ask me signs and symptoms of um, what poor culture looks like, what poor recruitment and employee engagement, engagement, we're going to talk about dysfunction. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And this is, this is my specialty. This is my jam because my, a lot of my research, a lot of my internships have been around building high trust cultures. um, And you can't look at these without recognizing what dysfunction looks like. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the, I'm going to kind of go through this with steps and I did not create this. I follow this by one of my absolute favorite professors and his name is Patrick Lencioni. If anybody's ever heard of Patrick Lencioni, he's written numerous books. Um, Again, like if if you have limited resources and you want to start to do some of this work, go, go to the library, grab three Patrick Lencioni books give yourself a weekend and you, you jam this out. Like you just saved (laughs) $10,000. You're welcome. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. So I'm going to go through these kind of rattle off just like I I did in the last segment with um, our employee life cycle. So signs of dysfunction are going to be the, the, the value alignment doesn't work. And you've, you've heard this a lot. A lot of people are talking about that in the coaching industry and salons and recruitment around making sure there's value alignment. Okay. What the hell does that mean? Then fear of conflict. Mm. This is where the conversation around psychological safety comes up. DE&I, diversity and inclusion, that lives there. Then we get to the area where lack of commitment, this is where the problems start happening, right? This is where the people start showing up late to work, wearing outfits that they shouldn't be wearing, being disrespectful. This is lack of commitment. Then now you're in the spiral and in an organizational structure, they call this the death spiral. Oh boy. (laughs) And this is is when the business is in decline. This is whether the employee is about to go out the window, the client's not coming to you anymore, or the business is going to go under. And this is the, um, you know, moving from accountability goes into what, what, what we would know of as being an individual contributor. Mm. Okay. This is when, toxicity is at its finest. So if I circle back, what do norms mean? Values. I don't love the term values per per se, because it's just like purpose. Like that's a really deep freaking thing that might take me three years to figure out like my (laughs) value, you know, like, yeah, shoot. Like that's like, I'm not deep enough for that. But, (laughs) But if we were to shoot out norms with each other, right, that's the onboarding process of like, what this looks like. So like, sorry for you, like, you know, maybe in a new relationship, new friendship, new, whatever you, you know, you, we may talk to each other and say like, hey, you know, I don't really do well when you yell at me. So just FYI, I know you got upset, totally cool. But like next time, if you get upset, just can you share it with me this way? Because mm. I'm going to be more receptive that way. Like I shut down when you do X, right? Yeah. So those are establishing norms. So that's something 
a really great leader can do that's that's running a team or the onboarding process if you have an HR department. Um, and then you can create policies around this one. I did a study um, in my master's degree with Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's is known for its norms of how people kind of show up at work and the way that they work together as a team. Um, another big one is um, that's done this really well is Ritz-Carlton. Right. They're very supported in the, the norms of how people behave. And there is a, a theorist, Tushman, that is, um, I'm forgetting the first one, but um, storming, norming, forming, and, and joining. And these are the stages that we go through. We see this a lot in romantic relationships <laughs> where you're dating, it's good. And then all of a sudden it's like, they do this, they do that. Like, it's like, boom, 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 boom. And that's the storming. Yeah. And then you meet, you start to get the norms together. And then you start to form bonds and you move forward and then you actually join. So this is very, very normal, right? Right. This happens now where dysfunction starts to happen is if that cannot follow through and we have a fear of conflict. Mm. If you don't want to bother, if you, if you want to shut down, if nobody wants to speak up, fear of conflict is detrimental. And this is where psych, building psychologically safe workspaces comes in is because you want people to be able to speak up. Um, I work with a landscape architecture firm where they're dealing with a lot of tools and there's a lot of safety issues. Someone could get physically injured and, and possibly result in death mm -hmm. if those policies aren't met and if somebody doesn't speak up on a job site if they see something unsafe, right? It has to be a culture. This is known in the fire department as well, right? Yeah. Like if you see somebody do something, you have to be able to speak up. It's something that is dealt with a lot in, in the medical industry of nurses versus doctors, right? A lot of work around that. So conflict is okay. It's okay for somebody to disagree with you. And that's where diversity comes in, right? Yeah. So owning conflict, when we can own, con when we can own conflict, we can commit. If you've ever been in a situation that a group of friends said, oh, we're going to go to this restaurant. You didn't say, I hate that restaurant because it always gives me a stomach ache. <laughs> you will unconsciously show up late, right? Yeah. Or you may call last minute and say, yeah, you know what? Something came up. I'm not coming. Why? Because you never committed to that. You weren't on board, mm. right? So when people aren't on board, they're no longer accountable, and then you, then real problem. You see where I'm going with this? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when you're no longer accountable, real problems happen. And I believe this is this is anecdotal research. I I don't know this founded or not, but I do believe a lot of the engagement and the development problems happen around the accountability because that's when people aren't being accountable. So then you look, how can we motivate them? Yeah. And nine times out of ten, if I were to really get in there and unveil this, I know that that organization has a problem more than likely with the, with conflict. I can almost tell you they have a problem with conflict. <clears throat> they don't share with each other candidly. 
I, I want to take a second to highlight this nuance you brought up. You know, often when discussing accountability, I think many of us think of repair um, as in the first step after a conflict, right? Like accepting the part that you played in it and owning up to it. But I like how you're talking about accountability here in terms of accountability within agreements you make with people, you know, or even regarding your values and whether you stand up for the things or people you care about. So before a conflict might have even happened. Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to that, it, it's are you supported to speak up? And that's where mm-hmm. the psychological safety comes in is, is are you part of the team that you feel comfortable to? So there's the accountability on your part and the accountability on the organization's part. Does the organization support you? Maybe they know you're not one to, you know, it's not comfortable for you to speak up so they can encourage you. Mm-hmm. And the other part is, is you have to encourage yourself if you know that that's your default, right? Yeah. And so that's where the accountability fits in because when when people are no longer accountable, here's what happens. And this is the conversation I get from business owners all day long (laughs) is that person becomes on their own agenda. They are no longer operating as a team. Mm. And they are contributing on an individual basis per their own politics. Right. Right. This is when they show up when they want to show up. They do their own damn thing. Um, I know with one of the businesses that I'm coaching, they tell me, I don't understand. I've told them this. They know this is the policy. Okay. They know it's a policy. But do they agree to it? No, that's why they're not doing it. They went off on their own because you've got to really make sure that they're agreeing to it and maybe there's something you're missing, right? And that's where you go back to the training and development is where am I accountable? What could I do differently to bring this person to be a contributor? And And then that lets us know What's the development of the next step? Because there are people that they're so far in into being an individual contributor that they need to move on. And that's okay, right? Yeah. And that's okay. And that's why it's okay to talk about separation and talk about, you know, people don't want to talk about death. They don't want to talk about the death of a company. They don't want to talk about firing somebody, mm-hmm. but then it has equal significance in this, in this cycle. And that's how we can become more accountable and be more part of a, of a bigger team. Just off the back of that, I think that we'd have a whole lot less, like we'd experience a whole lot less struggle with letting go of the idea that like someone left or like we had to part ways or whatever, if we were more curious about what happened and wanted to learn from you know, obviously it's not always going to happen. You don't always have closure, but like, I feel like if we were, if we leaned into like wanting to know more, I feel like it would be easier to let go. Cause I often hear like, you know, oh, like had a walkout or this or that. And then it's, it's just like that emotion is still so raw years later. And I'm like, man, that, that cannot be healthy <laughs> for you to live with even unconsciously, you know? Um, but yeah, so, so when you, when you think about like things that can go wrong in a salon, an organization, a a small business, whatever that is, and considering the fact that like, like we said in, I think it was maybe in the previous um, episode in part one, where we said, you know, most salons and spas um, are very small. Um, 
do you think like a lot of people consider themselves even like they consider the team and consider like their colleagues as like family, a second family? I mean, we spend so much time at work. Can you recover from a breach in trust or uh, a breach? Like I think you know, on a in a past conversation with Jay Williams, we were talking about you know someone can recover. Like, I don't know, I get a bad haircut from my my go-to barber. I, I can recover from that because I know that, like, he's been consistent, you know, over time. But can I recover from, like, a breach in trust? That, like, that's, like, where that, it, it kind of depends, right? So, like, can can a team recover from a, an incident where, like, trust is broken? Yes. So, yes, and I, I, I can imagine, you know, Jay is a good friend of mine, so I can imagine how... Amazingly rich that conversation was, and we're very close. So I would I wouldn't be surprised if we don't answer this very similarly. <laughs> um, but um, I do I I I would be remiss if I didn't caution the use of this term family around businesses and, right. and organizational culture. And and I caution this only because when I gave you the the when we were talking about the example of this salon that did very well um, systematically with their systems and, and I mean, very high profiting salon, very high profiting, but the dysfunction, right? And because it was a mirroring, mm-hmm. this, the dysfunction of a family of origin for a lot of people, right? And within organizational systems, if you look at this idea of structural dynamics, that a lot of times this idea of family, especially in a small business, um, it becomes its own organism, the the actual organizational culture. Mm-hmm. And this happens in very large global businesses as well. And so I caution that because we have to really say, like, if we're going to call this our family, like, do I like my family? Do I think I was my best with my family? Because I know a yeah. lot of times, you know, the anxiety people have of who they show up and who they become in the presence of their family is not who they feel they are. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I caution that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. choose choose that wisely, right? Um, but to your, to your point, um, there's a, a beautiful example around accountability. And it, it is all about accountability and how you handle a breach in trust. And this could be as an organization, as a business, a salon owner, with your client, with a team member, with a significant other, doesn't matter. In the 1980s, um, Johnson & Johnson, one of their biggest products was Tylenol, right? This is the 80s. This is, you know, very different time, time frame. Johnson & Johnson, very powerful company at that time, mm. but... Tylenol was 70% of the share of their income. So that's pretty significant, right? The idea of, and and so what happened in Chicago was there were multiple deaths and the the deaths were resulting in the use of Tylenol. Mm. And so come to find out that the deaths were not because of the company Johnson & Johnson. There's also something that they did to the Tylenol. The Tylenol was being laced. Right, someone was opening it and putting something in there that shouldn't be in there, and was wasn't there a documentary on Netflix around this? I'm sure this was a very this was a very big case because it prompted two major things. Two two major things. The first thing was Johnson and Johnson. I believe at the time was one of the first in history, especially at that size with a 70 percent market share of a product to recall 
There was, I mean, recalling something in the 80s was unfounded. It was a hundred million dollar recall. Hundred million dollars in the 1980s, right? That company could have gone under. And end of story. And so what happened, you know, from this was, and this is why people talk about values. When you know your values, and that to me again, what is what does values mean? It's the integrity of the company. Johnson and Johnson knew what who we are as a brand is to help people and make them healthier. And I don't know if that's actually their brand mission. I'm I'm just saying that's what I know of Johnson yeah. and Johnson, right? And this was in violation of that. So they would yeah. rather I and it, and it reminds me of this story. There's a story in the Old Testament of the the woman says, this is my baby, this is my baby. And they fight, no, no, give me my baby. And then the man says, okay, I'll cut the baby in half and I'll give you each a part of the baby. And the real mother says, no, you give her the baby. That That's the mother, <laughs> right? Because you, oh, when you, when you care something, you will sacrifice whatever that is for that, right? So Johnson and Johnson made a sacrifice, $100 million. It was also the launch of tamper-proof packaging. Mm. Tamper-proof packaging did not exist before this. So in that, they relaunched tamper-proof packaging and they soared because people were like, "I this happened, they were accountable. My trust actually increased in them as a brand. So that's, that's accountability. And, and, and in that accountability, you know, you can regain trust when somebody makes such a stand and a statement of what their integrity is. Yeah. And it has to be followed up by actions also. A hundred percent. Right. And that's the lens, you know, especially the, the DE&I culture. Yeah. So many companies can have a diversity, equity and inclusion lens, Right. But I'm going to poke holes and let me see your board of directors. Let me see your executive team. Okay. I don't, I don't buy it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And we could once again have a full episode on that alone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we've been talking about like, you know, recovering from breaches and trust and, and all that kind of stuff. But like, what does a high trust culture actually look like for you? And like, can we quantify or qualify leadership and employee behaviors in such a way that we can track the progress and know that like, hey, we're actually, you know, we're on the right track here? A hundred percent. So um, when if, if you want to hear more about this, if you listen to the last episode when we talked about the employee life cycle and we stated out the areas of the employee life cycle in a large size company, the HR department would even be divided into analytics of each of these components, right? There's Mm -hmm. going to be someone in charge of recruiting. There's going to be someone that literally runs like how people are onboarded. There's an HR person that's going to do um, exit strategy packages, all of that stuff, right? So for a small business owner, how we would break this down is again, clarity is number one, right? Because we want to, we want to lower the concepts of the, the idea, the feelings of uncertainty, Mm-hmm. So I can, sh- I'm going to share two different models with you guys. And these are things that you can literally Google, like different organizational development models. These are two of my favorite that I've worked with, like in grad school. The first is the BART model. And the second is the SWOT model. 
right? So this would be a step one. Like if I were, if you were bringing me into work with you mm-hmm. and we needed to establish this. So the BART model stands for boundaries, authorities, roles, and tasks. Okay. SWAT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So we're going to work on each of those. Let's say we're putting them in different boxes, whatever one you kind of, you know, are more attracted to, you're putting them in boxes. And what we're, we're looking for clarity. We're looking for where are we now? Where do we want to be? And how can we measure that? Because all of this is very measurable. Human behavioral, you know, it's it's hard, but it's we can we can measure any any variable. I can measure empathy. I can measure your psychological safety. Like this can all be measured. So if we look at, we need to know like what are the boundaries? Like who's the authority? Which like what does that mean? Like who's the boss? Right? Because sometimes there's like the boss of who has the title, but then sometimes there's like the top stylist that you don't, you don't dare cross paths with. Like they're the real boss. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. And then that comes into what are people's roles look like? And then lastly, like what are the tasks? Okay. Um, and then in the SWAT model, it, it's kind of looking at that differently, but looking at like from strengths, jumping into weaknesses, where are the areas of opportunities, like where we can grow? Um, and then what are threats to those areas of opportunities, right? So how, how do we kind of create bounds around those. And so how we do that is, um, you know, if you guys ever like live my Instagram, sometimes I'll actually do a lot of little posts on like the SWAT model, um, just pepper pastor. Like I have, I have some of this content on there if anybody's interested, but a smart goal would be something that's specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time bound. So what does this all mean when we put it together? If we look at the stages of the organizational life cycle, we could break each down and measure each and say, we know it's here. We want it to be here. And this is what we're going to do to identify how it's going to go. So for example, if I know I want to lose weight, I've heard if I lower my calories and I exercise, if I weigh myself today, and I want to lose this amount of weight, and then I weigh myself again in three weeks, and I do this lower calories and increase exercise, more than likely, I will see this result. Right. Right. So we can do this in human behavior. And there's um, a professor at a Stanford that I worked with called Huggy Rao. And again, something that you guys can look up on. And he's a professor on organizational behavior. And looking at just these little breakdowns of how you can measure performance, accountability, um, how people are bonding with each other within an organization, how resilient you are. Um, I work with a lot of coaches on, um, you know, because people are really great at coaching in the conversation, but not at measuring, where you can ask some questions and kind of have a survey pre and post Mm-hmm. within that time period that you are are measuring and seeing what you achieve. And, you know, this could be something that's done monthly. It could be something that's done annually. Again, it's it's up to you and, and as an owner, what you have time and resources for. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Because <laughs> I have so many, so many different questions pop into mind. I'm like, okay, we need to keep this like somewhat concise and into two episodes. Let's create a so. class. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> truly. Um, what would you what would you consider to be the benchmarks if we can quantify all those things and behaviors? What would you consider to be some benchmarks of a good 
spa or salon culture versus a great one. And can you still have a great culture if it's not high trust? Okay. So I want to, I want to answer your question around a good salon versus a great one first. Mm -hmm. And I'm very visual. And so I have to like put things in analogies for myself. Yeah. And a good salon, the salon owner could maybe leave for, I don't know, a day. Maybe they went on vacation for five days and then everything's going to be cool. Like there's going to be some dysfunction, like, you know, they'll probably get a call or two or an email, but they can do it. It's, it's, we're good. Mm -hmm. A great salon the owners can leave for an entire month, <laughs> fully have everything, I don't want to say automated, but each team member has the utmost of autonomy, takes accountability, and these owners can leave. And in a month, maybe they'll get a phone call. And that phone call is more of a coaching conversation of, hey, I think this is going to, I'm going to, how I'm, I'll handle it this way. What do you think? Right. Yeah. And when we're talking, if I if I give you a benchmark of um, of a salon, um, not a salon, but a, a business culture, one of my favorites is I believe it's the Ritz Carlton. That's who Horst um, a great. You want to learn about research, like reading um, the life of Horst who who developed Ritz Carlton. I'm pretty sure I should probably Google that. Make sure I'm saying that right as far as the hotel group. Um, but every single team member that works for the hotel group, it does not matter if you are a janitor, if you are the head concierge, if a client of the hotel, someone that's a guest staying there, mm -hmm. has a concern, some, you know, something came up that they would like you to address, each member has a $2,000 budget that they can do for that client. So even if I were walking out and I, I mentioned something to the doorman of like, hey, you know, this isn't right. That doorman has a budget of $2,000 to make that right for that guest without question. Oh my God. That is amazing. <laughs> that's, that's accountability, yeah. right? Because every, and, that, and that's equity, right? It's not equal, right? The paycheck of the doorman is going to be very different than the paycheck of you know, the head concierge, right? Mm -hmm. But it's equitable mm -hmm. because we're all valued and, and our, our ability to make the guest experience its best is equal because this is the equitability that's, that's been created. Um, and then to answer your other question, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can still have a great culture without it being considered high trust. Now, the academic in me is, go is always going to acknowledge that high trust, high, high diverse cultures, it's, it's okay if it's not for everybody. That's okay. Just because these are trendy terms doesn't mean it necessarily fits for your field or your culture, right? Mm. So we look at we look at venture capitalist firms, um, areas of finance, uh, law firms, right? Those tend to be more homogeneous um, cultures, and yeah. and they can be very functional, 
right? It, function dysfunction doesn't doesn't work so much in that. It's about how the task needs to be. So in manufacturing, you don't want diversity because everything has to be the same, right? Yeah. Diversity, the research around diversity is around around innovation. So having a very um, diverse culture is going to be when we think of Pixar, right? right? Apple, like you, when you, when you want new technologies, I love thinking about this. Like if we knew a comet was coming to the earth right now, they would hire the top, they would bring in the top scientists from around the globe, right? It wouldn't, it would be the most diverse to solve this problem. Cause that's, that's what diversity does. That's the beauty in it. Mm. Now, how you look at that in a high trust culture has to be kind kind of relevant to your culture because there are again the to the point of the salon this is an intercafeer rated salon i mean top top salon but they operate on dysfunction just like we all know a functioning alcoholic friend <laughs> right <laughs> yeah right but it, it's it's what's the pain point in your business you know, change doesn't happen unless the pain is great. The mm. discomfort has to be so great that you're prompted to change. Yeah. Right. So there's got to be a discomfort within your employee life cycle or your organizational life cycle or even your client life cycle that you're like, OK, I need to do something about that. Yeah. And that's where you can kind of look at this this high trust culture and these areas of dysfunction. Boy, this is like so, so amazingly informative. <laughs> like, thank you so much. I love this work. And why I love this work is because it is really uncomfortable. There's a lot of discomfort to it. Um, mm -hmm. And how I, again, my analogies, how I kind of equate that in, in my own vision is when a new client comes in the salon, you know, and you've never met them I don't know if I'm going to like them. Are they going to be difficult? Like you just, it's unknown. Again, that uncertainty. And for them, the level of anxiety for a new client is through the roof, even if you've been like highly recommended. And in that, in that moment, one, that is the beauty of the beauty industry, number one. And that being in the face of fear and facing discomfort and growing from discomfort and constantly being told like, oh no, I don't know if I, if I like this here or this person didn't come back to me. I mean, there is no industry more that is constantly faced with having to develop themselves and having to have thick skin on people's opinions of what they do. Because our work is all based on an opinion. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. not... It's not That's why I love statistics. There's no damn opinion about people. <laughs> like, yes, give me statistics, right? My, yeah. my, I need that after 25 years of being vulnerable constantly to someone's opinion. Yeah. So, and also, like, even if you think of retail, like, the amount of times you'll be told no and you'll be, like, rejected in terms oh of an gosh. offer. <laughs> you want to give up, right? You yeah. want to give up. So why I love this industry and why this is so powerful, because if anyone can face change and making change positive and beautiful, it's this industry. That's one. Two, I actually did a research study <clears throat> in the beauty industry a year ago, and I was setting out to research how empathy played a part in the client relationship. So if you were an empathetic hairdresser, were you more likely to have more clients, basically, is what I was looking at. Right. 
And what came back to me through the data was absolutely wild. It did not have to do with empathy. It was something that I had to code in a new terminology. And and this is something I, I feel enriched to leave everyone with is that clients, and this is the same clients, it goes back to, I don't know if this in this episode with us talking or the last one, but there was a variable that I identified as welcoming. What hairstylists do really, really well is they make people feel welcome. They make people feel welcome, right? Even if the receptionist doesn't, or maybe there's a gap with the, the, shampoo assistant, the assistant is having a bad day. When they're in with that stylist, they feel welcome. And that connects us back to the restaurant industry and how it feels if a hostess or, you know, that's the experience. Mm -hmm. So we can bring that welcoming in into all of the areas and the care that is done in this. And my last, my last statement is going to be around neuroscience is that this is one of the biggest fields that we are licensed to touch people. When you touch somebody, there's an increase in oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And the professor that I did a lot of work with, Paul Zach, spent 20 years looking at oxytocin and trust. When you have a release in oxytocin, there is a significant relation to an increase in trust. So we have this incredible ability in the beauty industry to have trust with our clients, we just need to grow that beyond and, and make that go broader to our, our teams and our organizations. Wow. That is quite the thing to leave people on with. I thank you so, so much for your time. Um, if I was a salon owner, I would definitely want you as a consultant. So <laughs> my next you. and final con- my, my <laughs> next and final question to you is how can people reach out, I guess, and in what way can you help? Yes. So you can reach out to me two ways. You can either reach out like um, Instagram. My, my website is pepperpastor.com. And then my company um, is Purpose and Policy. So purpose and policy or pepper pasture, um, you know, you'll, I'll, I'll connect with you and I'm always available to do absolutely complimentary um, exploration calls a hundred percent. And, and it's, it's on an individual level to an organizational level. So it doesn't matter if you're a single person or you've got, you know, four salons. Amazing. Pepper, you've been uh, you've been one of my favorite guests all time. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> no, honestly, I don't know. Maybe it's something that I also, like maybe it's a topic that I feel very, you know, close to and, and interested in. Um, but I think, I truly, truly think your delivery and um, lens on things is very, very easy to understand also from like a listening perspective and just like, you know, like, yes, we've talked about a lot of dysfunction and a lot of like, you know, change, but you make it feel very um, accessible to do that. So yeah, (laughs) I really, really appreciate it. (laughs) But yeah, no, there's, and I, and honestly, like there's so much to unpack from these two, um, parts of this episode and so I really really thank you for the time um and making it you know an amazing 
an amazing episode for people to to listen to and and take back into their salon and share with their teams. Thank you, and and thank you for your invitation and for for your great questions. Because hello, this would be nothing without your darn great questions. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You're very kind. Well, listen. Thank you so much once again for your time. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, is there anything you want to add? No, thank you. I'm always just. I'm always here to help anybody. So please don't hesitate to reach out. If you're interested by any of the things that we mentioned or talked about in the episodes, whether it was 275 or 276, this one, um, please, please do reach out to Pepper. Uh, She'd be more than happy to have a conversation. But also, if you're interested, she mentioned it at some point, um, in, you know, taking an assessment for emotional intelligence, EQ, which encompasses many skill sets, including stress management, resilience, managing conflict, influencing skills, catalyzing change, teamwork and collaboration, building trust. Um, the assessment measures 26 skills slash competencies. Um, she offers that EQ testing and development for individuals and teams. So, you know, you can work with her on that. If you're interested, head over to pepperpastor.com, send her a note to share your interest in further understanding your emotional intelligence and how it can add to your life. Um, the EQ assessment will take approximately 15 to 20 minutes and it's completed online through a confidential link. Um, um, the initial assessment is an investment of 275 US dollars. Your assessment purchase will include a 40 page outline of your skills, development tips, resources, and a 50 minute virtual debrief session. You'll also have a choice to book as many debrief sessions as you feel necessary for your development. I hope you enjoyed these two last episodes as much as I did anyways. I think there's a lot in there to learn from, uh, to implement, to talk about with, you know, your salon teams. Um, and I'll end on this because we did acknowledge at some point in the episode, you know, you're only, you're only human. You don't necessarily have, uh, all the time in the world to do all the different things. So if you are, uh, looking to take advantage of AI and see how you know it can maybe reduce your workload a little bit. Um, Forrest actually has created a free ebook on how to use AI as a salon or spa owner in a way that simplifies the running of your salon. So you can access it through the show notes. There's a link there. Um, I'll also send it out through the Forrest FM newsletter. Um, but essentially, you're looking at a beginner's guide to what AI is and advice on how you can access free tools to try it out yourself. We cover how to market your salon, better analyze salon reports, having clearer communication with clients, predicting future trends using AI tools. There's going to be example prompts to get you started using AI platforms. You'll get advice on using AI in conjunction with your forest system, as well as precautions to take. And you'll also get an interview with an AI expert tailored specifically for the salon and spa industry. And of course, there's going to be so much more in there. So if you're interested in learning what happens when cutting edge technology meets the world of professional hair and beauty businesses, download your copy today. Happy reading. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening to Forest FM. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. As always, you can head over to forest.com forward slash FM to catch all the latest from the show and check out the links and resources mentioned throughout the episode. And if you've got any feedback, be sure to let us know. Send us an email at forestfm at forest.com. 
Brought to you by Forest Salon Software. Forest FM episodes air weekly, sharing inspiring stories from the salon floor and amplifying community voices all over the globe. In your salon, we're at the heart of it. This episode was edited and mixed by Audio Z, Montreal's cutting edge post production studio for creative minds looking to have their vision professionally produced and mixed. Great music makes great moments.